Almighty and everlasting God, in Christ you have revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So, how do you interpret uh, the world around you? How do you, how do you handle failed uh, expectations? What happens when you expect one thing but get another? This seems to be the story of life altogether. I found some help on a quick Google search uh, when I asked for help uh, overcoming uh, disappointments through failed expectations. And I found an article that was written just, just like this. And so the article was entitled, entitled, How to Deal with Disappointment and Unmet Expectations. And it gave seven bullet points and then talked about them. Seven bullet points. See the event as just one small blip in your career or life. One unimportant moment in time. Don't give the event too much importance. Number three, let it go as fast as possible. Number four, get back to work. Number five, learn from the experience. Number six, forgive. And number seven, let go of shame. Well, now there was some, probably some pretty good advice in this article. But perhaps John, being imprisoned, needed this Google article here. <laughs> John's hanging out in a dungeon of this fortress, which is high up on a, uh, a ridge by the Dead Sea, very isolated. And um, he was in prison because he, he was not a political guy. And so he would just tell the truth. That's what prophets do. Uh, lot, lots of times the, there's a, um, an understanding of prophecy and a prophet of one who's going to foretell, uh, to tell of the future, tell of what's coming. There's, there's, uh, there's the other aspect, which is really huge uh, responsibility of a prophet, and that's the foretelling. It's tell the truth, and I don't care where it lands because this is how it goes. This is what John was doing. This is what John did do. But then John just didn't stop when he announced the kingdom. He condemned uh, Herod's marriage to Herodias, who was at one time his sister-in-law. And so from that, since he condemned it, they threw him in jail. And so it's from this dungeon where these questions start coming to uh, John. And... um, I think, this, I think this is an interesting story in that we see the humanity of John frequently. And I've, I've said this many times, and a lot of times if your Bible is saying St. Luke in it, or St. Matthew, or St. Mark, we, are, we already think of them on a different plane because they, they have something we don't have. We're, we're, just, we're just normal old Joes and Jims and Sues and Bettys, and, and they, all, they're called saints, and we expect them to behave in... in uh, you know, perfection, and yet the Bible tells us the truth about these characters and who they are and, what, and, and some of their frailties. And in this, when Jesus, later in this passage, says that there's not one who was born of woman who is greater than John, we see something that we can relate to. In the midst of his trials, in the midst of his tribulation, he's saying, if you're the Jesus I was telling about, why am I in here? Why am I not receiving help? If, if, if you're the one I was telling about, why is it that you're, what I'm seeing doesn't line up with what I was preaching? <clears throat> In Luke chapter 3, verse 17, 
John was saying, when he was telling about the one to come, he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But to chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's this theme of judgment. John would preach about what the Holy Spirit was going to do and how the, uh, the, the one who was coming, this Messiah, was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit would bring renewal. But there was this other side, and, and from what John's seeing, John can see the Holy Spirit renewing many things throughout the, Jesus' ministry. But this judgment, this judgment that he preached, where is it? This judgment was promised. You know, John didn't come up with this message on his own. A, th- this prophet hears a word from the Lord and directly gives that word. And so he's wondering, where's this judgment, and how come we haven't seen it? The unfolding of this kingdom is already looking different than I expected it to. And after all, the Romans are still in charge. The, it's not as if this one who was going to come and, and bring judgment has um, removed from power this um, oppressive government. No, it's, the Romans are still in charge. And, and, and their lackeys like Herodias and, and Herod are still doing their jobs and they seem to be getting along fine. This is a beautiful picture of the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. We see this, when you're reading in Ecclesiastes and he sees this and sees this, and it's throughout the Bible all over, but then you look around your world and you see this, it makes you wonder, where's that judgment that's coming? When John couldn't reconcile what he'd heard about Jesus' ministry and this kingdom coming in, when his expectations failed, what did he do? He, he went directly to Jesus with his questions. I think just in that, the question for us is, where do you go? Where do you go when you have failed expectations? Where do you turn? And do you turn to disappointment? And do you wallow in your disappointment? Do you turn to Jesus, the one with the answers? We sang a song about the one who has the answers. And John wanted to go directly to the source and ask the questions. So we see in verse 20, it says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now you can imagine this um, turmoil that John must have felt where for all his life he'd been preparing uh, he had been prepared to deliver this message, and then he um, recognized the Messiah and proclaimed that that was the one who was to come. And but things are unfolding, and it's not like he expected. So I don't imagine it was easy for John to send these messengers, but he did. So the first thing we see is that Jesus validates his ministry. Jesus validates his own ministry, and. Verse 21, it says, And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So Jesus responds to their questions by turning up the, his spiritual power, that manifestation of the divine power that's in him. The number of people who may have been affected in that very short amount of time was likely incredible. And you had people who were... Who, who were now well, who had been suffering perhaps for years from different diseases and plagues, people freed from oppressive spirits, people who uh, um, 
were now set free and healed, and their sorrows and, and, and those of the families of these people, their sorrows had now turned to joy. So Jesus responded to John's question with a demonstration of his power. And then he also responded with the messianic prophecies from Scripture. Verse 22 says, And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. In that verse, Jesus referred to four different passages out of Isaiah about what the coming Messiah would do. So he gave John empirical evidence. Now you see this, you see what's going on. And he gave him scriptural evidence. And he's, so he's, he's standing on the word of God. And then he's saying, what you see happening all around you is what the scriptures had been pointing to. So he give, there's this, there's this, the messenger should go back to John with confidence in this message. But what he didn't tell John is why he's delayed this judgment. So the, if the judgment hasn't come yet, is this true still? He doesn't give him any reason why the judgment is delayed, and he doesn't give John any hope that he will be rescued from prison, from this dark dungeon he's in. How would Jesus' answer bring comfort to John? If you're in John's shoes, if you're hearing that as the response, how does that bring you comfort? Would John be satisfied with the truth, even though the way it was unfolding wasn't like John thought it should be? What about you? What about you? How many times do we go seeking the Lord and we say, why, Lord? Why this? Why that? Why me? Why now? instead of seeking the Lord for who He is? Do we spend our time seeking answers for ourselves in our own plight, in our own situation, and our eyes are focused on us, or do we, do we seek Him desiring to learn the truth about Him? I think, this, I think, that's a, I think there's a critical thing going on here, and, and, and John was later beheaded, and that, that his head was delivered to Herodias. He didn't get out of jail. And I believe this truth that came back to John brought him comfort. Because John's looking for, looking for confirmation, is Jesus the one? And it would be kind of a bummer if you've risked your reputation your, and your entire life on a message of hope, and then there's no hope. But it's in this clarifying of the reality that John's recognizing this, the, of this sin in the world and this Redeemer redeeming people out of this world, and he's getting to live and witness this firsthand. It's just that when we get to witness that, it's not a very comfortable situation. The only hope that Jesus gave to John, and he gives to us, is in verse 23. and said, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I've struggled with that one before, and, I, and, and I'm like, was John offended? Because was he jealous? What? What, what does that mean? Kent Hughes, a, a, the commentator, uh, says that uh, this has the sense of saying, John, you and anyone else like you will be blessed if you do not fall away because of your disappointment with the way I choose to work. I think this is huge. I think this is huge. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You will be blessed 
if you do not fall away because of your disappointment with the way I choose to work, is essentially what Jesus is saying here. How many people do you know that kind of fit that description? They're disappointed with the way Jesus works. Have you ever been in a conversation and you're talking about rights and wrongs and some of the popular topics of the day and somebody will say, well, my God would never. That's a popular way to go. Because we create a, 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 a God in our own image and then we put onto that God what we believe is right and wrong. You hear of people sort of like leaving their faith or losing, losing their faith when for a number of, there could be all kinds of reasons, of church hurt, yes, for all kinds of reasons, but people quit believing in Jesus because, and then fill in the blank. He didn't deliver me the spouse I needed, the spouse I prayed for, this, this perfect spouse I asked him for. I, I asked God for a particular job. I even received that job, and I knew that it was from him, and then the place closed, and I was out of work. How could God do that to me? I can't believe in this good and loving God while I see my fill-in-the-blank sister, brother, mother, husband, wife, daughter suffer from fill-in-the-blank. And people are doing this all the time. The people who you associate with, the people who are in the shopping line behind you, they're everywhere people come to this point. I can't, and it's, and it's not, I'm not saying everybody does this, but there are a lot of people who no longer have faith because their expectations were not met. And after all, we, we all, we just, you just know that if, if God is all loving, then whatever that situation is would have become fulfilled. One of the, uh, one of the most needless um, sufferings that I had ever experienced was when my mom suffered and suffered from cancer and she died at the age of 69. And for each one of us that's in the room, that's really not very far away. She was very young and she was, she's the sweetest, she was always the sweetest person. She was a school teacher. And it's when Melanie says, Melanie was the principal at, at, at Lubeck Elementary and she said, and I always look across from the principal's office and it's Miss Sally's room. All kinds of, I, I was uh, somewhere the other day and there's a, um, <clears throat> a woman there and said, was your mother a teacher? And I said, well, yes, she was. I said, well, that was a long time ago. And she said, well, I had her for third grade. She was, she was just a great teacher. Well, everybody, no, nobody ever, anywhere, has ever any, said anything bad about my mother. And everybody loved her. And she was kind of like in the prime of retirement life and enjoying life. And then she's stricken with cancer. Well, how do you reconcile, how do you reconcile the, innocence, uh, the innocent suffering from such a disease with the goodness of God? Most of you have experienced more tragedy than I have. How do you reconcile tragedy with the goodness of God? It's this little beatitude that's in this passage that we as believers need to embrace and live into today. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The reality is we don't know how God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't know how he does that. We just trust him in the midst of our suffering. We have our own ideas of how he should work. And, and, when, and when things have been wronged, we want to see judgment very swiftly. So we can relate to John's issue. Where's the judgment? 
if the kingdom has come, how can it be so rotten here? Patty and I were talking before the service about that big drug bust that we had. And it was one of the largest drug busts in West Virginia and Ohio's history. There were all kinds of people right here in this city that were arrested for drugs. How does this look like the kingdom has come? In the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this brokenness, we must not despise Jesus because we don't agree with the way he works. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he says. The next thing we see is that Jesus validates his messenger. He, validate, he, he validates John, and he validates John's ministry as well. So the, he's answered these messengers. He's answered John. The messengers are going away. And then he turns to the crowds. And, and there must have been something here that if, if John could be shaken to the point he needs to ask these questions, Jesus seems to need to offer a clarification of who John is and validate him and his calling and his ministry. 24 says, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So he, he, he turns to this crowd, which would have known John, evidently, given what uh, Luke's going to tell us here in just a second. He says, what would you go out to see? A timid man, uh, one who was not confident, one who was shaky, one who was um, easygoing, pliable. No, what you went out to see was one who wouldn't even wear fine clothing. He wouldn't even wear soft clothing. He would put camel's hair on him. This was a man sent by God, a messenger of God. He was more than a prophet. uh, Malachi 3 is quoted, and and so we're in verse 27. It says, This is he of whom is written, Behold, I send a messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And then Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, for the, we, our, we had a reading out of Hebrews which emphasized the high priestly role that Jesus is, uh, fulfills. Also in, G, in, in uh, Hebrews, in chapter 11, there's this whole hall of faith, we call it. All these people who came, these greats. That, there's Abraham. There's, there's, there's Isaac. There's David. There's Moses. There are all kinds of people in that hall of faith that we know as if there's got to be somebody who was great, surely... These people were great. But what Jesus is saying is, of those who were born among women, John is the greatest of them all. But then he turns and twists that, so he says, but anybody who comes into the kingdom is greater than he. How can that be? So the kingdom has got to be greater than its message, messenger. It was a privilege, and John had a role, and there is no doubt he had a role. The fact that you will see him suffer, he is suffering currently and he will suffer and he'll suffer death. His role was given to him and he had completed it. In the announcing of the, mess, of, of the kingdom coming, the announcing of the Messiah. And then because he announced it and then the Messiah comes and the kingdom is established, 
there are those who are able to be in the kingdom, and the kingdom is greater than its messenger. So a position in the kingdom is greater than the herald of the kingdom. So then we get into this, the people's responses is the next thing we see. And so people respond to this truth, and some people are going to respond in belief and faith and confidence. And some people are going to respond with lack of faith, with um, ridicule, complaining, and tearing down. So we've got this parenthetical statement in verses 29 and 30, and Luke's helping us, the reader, out as he's writing to that Theophilus. He wants him to understand. He wants us to understand. So 29 says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So the common folks heard Jesus, they believed his word, and then therefore they declared God just. They, they believed. Those who had been baptized by John were inclined to believe. Well, why would that be? Well, the Pharisees and the lawyers were not willing to follow John's call for baptism of confession and repentance of their sins. They would rather stand on their own merits. They would rather stand on their own good works. They believed they could keep the law. Now, they wouldn't say they could keep the law perfectly, but they would say they could keep the law sufficiently. And when we read these stories, and you got this great contrast between those of faith and the religious leaders, it makes us want to look at religious leaders and see who can we compare these people to. In this story, we're talking about those who are seeking the righteousness in Christ versus those who are willing to stand in their own righteousness. And again, all those people you're bumping uh, elbows into and shoulders into, those people who are in your neighborhood and in your work and in the checkout line behind you, this fits that description. They don't have to be a religious leader to have this kind of understanding. And, and, and how do people get here? I think there's a big ignorance of what sin is. So most of the kind of people we've just been talking about probably don't have an in-depth understanding of what's in the Bible anyway. And it's important for the church to actually teach the depth of sin. In order to teach the depth of sin, we need to teach the high, holy um, purpose of the law. So some of us who focus on grace sometimes get slammed by people because they say, well, you're just all about grace. But the reality is, we have a very, and, and therefore you have a low view of law. No, the truth is, is I have a very high view of law, which only helps us recognize the depth of our sin. If I didn't believe the law to be as high and holy as it is, it would be much easier for us to rationalize our sin and rationalize it away. So there's an ignorance of sin, and I think this is true with lots of people. And I think as much as we even talk about this, as much as we dwell on it, as much as I believe we proclaim the clarity and the truth of the gospel, I think it's true in us because of our unwillingness to believe. Because when we hear bad stories, it's still easy to say, I'm not surprised, especially when you understand the situation or whatever, and you say, I'm not surprised. But for us, could we see ourselves in that same situation? Could we see ourselves as one of the 130 or whatever it was that got arrested? You know, I, I would stand up on my high soapbox and say, no, that wouldn't, that's not, that wouldn't be me. No, that wouldn't be my children. But it's, the reality is that there, by the grace of God, go I, then what we recognize is there is no sin that's beyond our ability 
to commit. And then when we understand that Jesus talked about not only actions, but your thoughts and your motives. Okay, now we're, we're all a mess. When, when we're comparing ourselves with the Ten Commandments and we say, well, I, okay, I'm doing pretty good. And Jesus gets a hold of them, he messes us up. Because those you did think you did keep, because he gets into your thought life and, and, and how you're thinking, it doesn't even have to be how you do. It's how you thought about it. He explains how you've then broken those commandments. The problem with a shallow view of sin without understanding what um, is really going on with it, if we don't dwell on that, if we don't teach that, then this ignorance comes from this shallow doctrine of sin, and we've reduced sin to just a a, a list of habits or a, a list of bad traits, which we can keep. So, you know, if you would wear your hair like me and dress like me, and you would do these things, you're going to be in good shape. There is modeling that happens with our faith. And right behavior is a piece of that. I am, I am not saying that's not true. But when we reduce following Christ to looking like me, dressing like me, we have, we have simplified this doctrine of sin to something so manageable that we can keep. With that, then, it turns one to self-righteousness. So because I can keep this law, it's far easier than for me to look down my nose at others who can't keep that law. And that's what happens. It happens when we have a, if, if, you, if, if you have a fundamentalist, I, I'm, I'm sure people refer to me as a fundy from time to time. And I, I do believe in the fundamentals. But there are people who are fundamentalists, and you will know some of them. And if you're in conversation with them, and they're talking about like the upcoming holiday, how they'll not participate because of it, it's an evil uh, holiday, and they have certain things in which they do, when you hear these things, Listen closely, because it could be that there, there is an air of self-righteousness because of what, how they are able to keep the law as they understand it, as they see it. Once we understand the, the depths of the sin, then we'll understand the depths uh, or, or the, the great need we have for our Savior. So I think many people are just like the Pharisees, and we think we can keep the law when we can't. And then we don't realize how far off the law we are. So Jesus, in this frustration of how these people have received this truth and received John, received him, he turns to them and says, To what then shall I compare this peop- the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. John the Baptist says, Come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So they, they, they didn't know what to do with John. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. So they demonized John, and they scandalized Jesus. They would not receive what the Lord had given to them. And then, of course, the best way to... Keep yourself up is to tear others down. They knew this. They practiced it well. But we do this today, too. People would like to complain. Sermon is too long. Sermon is too short. Sermon is too doctrinal. Sermon is not doctrinal enough. The music is too new. The music is too old. There are all kinds of things that are out there that are problematic for me following the Lord. What we actually see here is it is an act of mercy. It's an act of humongous grace 
when we are able to see our need for a Savior. When there's something that penetrates our own self-righteousness and humbles us so that we can say, Oh Lord, we need a Savior. Oh Lord, I am that person who is the sinner. It's, instead of calling Jesus the one who's the sinner and the, the glutton and the drunkard, how about we look at ourselves? And by God's grace, he brings a humble spirit to those who will believe. And, and it's something that we continue to grow in as we die to self and look to him. And then we do believe that we are saved only then by the blood of Jesus. So we want to give thanks to the Lord for his act of kindness in showing our need for the Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.